And you need a set of notes as we continue our series, Positive Holiness. And we are going to pick up where we left off on page four in those notes in just a bit. Let me announce some things that are coming up. Ladies, this Wednesday continues the Ladies Midweek Series, 7 o'clock on the meaning of marriage. You're all invited and encouraged. Men, this Saturday at 9 o'clock, breakfast. And then a, a discussion instruction time will be finished by 11. That's this Saturday at 9. Next Sunday... During this hour, we begin our newcomers orientation. If you are new to our church, you've never taken our newcomers orientation, I encourage you to be here for four weeks. That's starting next week and then the three weeks thereafter during this hour. And then I'll have a group of you in one of the adult classrooms out the back door across the hallway for those four weeks. We'll go through a notebook of material. And for those four weeks, we'll have some of our guys filling in teaching in here. That starts next week. So it means our positive holiness series will have a four week break. And then um, I started to say we'll pick it up the week after that. It's really not true because on August 20th, I'll be back in here. But on August 20th, I have a, a special thing that I'm doing. I'll tell you more about that later. I'll send some emails about that. So it really won't be until August 27th uh, that we'll pick this back up again. But we will pick it back up. So try to keep those notes. I'll try to remind you to bring those notes back with you on the, uh, the 27th. So next week starts our newcomers orientation. And that class uh, does not obligate you to join the church, to become a member of the church. Uh, but someone pointed out to me that I probably should say that that class is necessary if you do join the church. So taking it doesn't mean you join the church. But if you want to join our church, that is something that we require you to do is take that four-week newcomers class. And then lastly, next Sunday at five o'clock is baptism. And two things about that. If you or your child has been thinking about baptism and you've slipped your mind, you can't slip your mind anymore. It's next week. So fill out an application, the one page application that is at the desk in the lobby. Turn that in. They'll get it to me. We'll go from there. That's for the baptism candidates. But we always have a dinner after the baptism. Most of you know that. And for that, dinners always go better if there's food. So we need food for that. We've had a sign-up sheet for that that we've uh, sent out uh, electronically by email. A number of you have signed up for that using that means. Thank you. But I'm told by those who are organizing the dinner, we still have some slots left uh, for that. So if you will go online, look at the email I sent you uh, this past week that had that link in it. It was just an email all by itself for baptism dinner. I didn't include anything else in it just so that link would be isolated so you wouldn't forget about it after you were reading the other stuff in an email. So it's an email that I sent this week. It's all by itself. And uh, click on that and then indicate what it is you'll be able to bring uh, if you're able to do so. Thank you. All right, this is our series, Positive Holiness, uh, how to be in the world uh, but not of the world. And in the first two weeks, we've seen what positive holiness is, what we mean by that. What's meant by that is that contrary to what many of us have caught, if not had taught, is that holiness is not simply what you avoid. It's not simply not doing things. We call it positive holiness because the things that we refrain from, the things that we avoid, the things that we do not do as Christians 
are all because of the positive objective, the positive goal that we have to become more like Christ, to please Christ, uh, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, hang all the law. So that includes all the negative commands, all the prohibitions, all the things you don't do and you're to stay away from. Those are all because of what it is you're supposed to do. And those things retard your progress in that. They're obstacles that keep you from being able to do that. So holiness is positive. Holiness is something that we are pursuing. It's something that we do. And then of necessity, that means there are things you don't do. It's like you're training in a sport. Perhaps you're a runner and you've got to meet a championship coming up. You're training for that. You want to win. You want to win the prize. You have a positive goal you're trying to achieve. Win. Come in first. But if you're going to do that, isn't it the case that there are some things you can't do in the run-up to that? There's some things you can't eat. There's some things you need to avoid. There's some activities you need to avoid. There's stuff you need to not do in order to accomplish that. Well, that's what we mean by holiness. We're trying to accomplish something. And of necessity, then, there are things that we don't do. That's why the title, then, Positive Holiness. And then last week, we started to look at, then, how worldliness fits into this issue of holiness. If you don't understand what worldliness is, you can't properly pursue holiness. The Bible has a lot to say about worldliness and the world and the need for God's holy people as we are called as Christians in Scripture, the need for God's holy people to stay out, stay away from the world. Page 3, I've got a bunch of verses listed for you there that talk about that. Do not conform to any longer to the pattern of this world. Romans 12, James 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone that chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world comes not from the Father but from the world. And the world and its desires, notice that word desires, gives you a clue about what worldliness is. Those pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. That's why Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified for his followers Father, they are in the world, so they're physically located and surrounded by this malevolent uh, malevolent thing called the world. They're in it, but they're not of it. And I said last week that in is our location, but of is our source. And the world is not to be the source of what makes Christians tick, what makes Christians do what they do and avoid what they avoid. So then down toward the bottom of page 3, a long definition of the world as this system that's opposed to God is the thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time current in the world, which at every moment of our lives we inhale, again inevitably exhale. So it's all around us. It's the air we, we breathe. And last week I gave some definitions, and I want to try to succinctly put those together. And then we move on on page four, okay? 
I gave some definitions that you have to have and you have to understand if you're going to get this issue of holiness and worldliness straight. Here's one, culture. Culture. What do we mean by culture? So here's my one-line definition of culture. Culture is the expression of values in society. Culture is the way a society expresses what it values. It does that through the means of culture, the communication vehicles of culture, literature, music, movies, fashion, all of that. These all comprise culture. And culture is the expression of the values in society. That's culture. Worldliness is this. It's fallen values, sinful values, expressed in culture. So culture is just the collective values that a people express in a given society at a given time. Worldliness is fallen values. It's a particular kind of values. Remember, culture is just whatever values, just their values. Worldliness is fallen sinful values expressed in culture. All right, so those are two important definitions. I was throwing those terms around last week. I'm just trying to make it succinct. And then here's a third one, important definition, common grace. Common grace. Now, most of us think of grace as God's gift. That's the root of the word grace, gift. God's grace in our salvation given to us through Jesus. And, of course, that's the most profound expression of God's grace. But grace has a broader sense. That's why common grace. That's called special grace or saving grace. But then there's common grace. That is, God's goodness, his undeserved favor given to people commonly, Christians and non-Christians. Common grace. Because of common grace, non-Christians are not as bad as they could be. If you did not have common grace in things like, so here's, Here's an example of common grace. God giving common grace to his world that does good things for everybody, not just Christians. Believe it or not, government is a means of common grace. Now, we yap and complain about government and taxes and all that. We all have views about who should be in government and what the government should do and what the policies ought to be. I get all of that. But biblically, government is a gift from God. Romans chapter 13 says that the one who rules is a minister to you for good because he restrains the effects of evil. That's from the hand of God and everybody benefits. Police are a part of God's common grace. So when you complain about the speed trap, catch yourself and say, this is a good gift from God. That keeps people from more people from getting killed than do. So God has these means of, of common grace. He's got he's got general goodness 
because people are made in the image of God and they know right from wrong, that prevails, usually. Now, the more society moves from God and consciousness of God, from a God-centered approach, then the less these things that used to be very obvious about what's right and wrong are no longer obvious. We're living in a time where we're seeing those things break down. That's seeing common grace break down. And I mentioned last week that proof that common grace holds the world together in the form of government, in the form of conscience that people have so that they know certain things are right and certain things are wrong and that's a restraint upon what they do. Proof that that's holding the world together in addition to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world. In Christians. Restraining the effects of evil in the world. You are the salt of the earth. One of the ways we're preserving the world is just by being here and and acting like Christians and having an effect on the world. And unbelievers benefit from that even though they don't know that and they don't acknowledge that. And increasingly they're hostile to the very people that they benefit from. But proof that that's the case is when we're removed, as the Bible teaches we one day will be, then the world goes to pot. Then the place becomes unlivable. The restraints of common grace are lifted and it becomes an evil time, a time of evil, a time of trouble on the earth, such as has never happened in the history of the world. The Bible tells us that's what it will be like. So common grace is God's goodness, God's gifts given to everybody, not just Christians. So you put all those together. You've got culture is the expression of values in society. The world or worldliness is fallen, sinful values expressed in culture. And then there's common grace that everybody, even non-Christians, benefit from. Now, you put that all together. If we're going to be holy people, which we've seen defined as separate, set apart, set apart from the world, then we got to know how to identify these fallen values when they show up, when they're expressed in culture. I've got to be busy about discerning, analyzing, examining, I said last week, exegeting the culture. Stay with me. I've got to pick out the things that are in culture that are common grace, good things, in the arts, in whatever form it takes. I've got to pick out the good things and I have to reject the worldly things. The things that express fallen values. So I have to look at it. I have to analyze it. I have to consciously and intentionally decide. So simply going along and thinking that I will be holy without intentionally doing this analysis and examining and making conscious, intentional choices about the things I'm going to imbibe, the things I'm going to watch, the things I'm going to say, the people I'm going to hang around with, everything I do needs to be analyzed from the perspective of what does God say is good and what does God say is fallen. And if you don't consciously, intentionally do that, hear me, you will by default 
be worldly. Here's the thing. Worldliness is the default setting for everybody. Everybody. That's the default setting for Christians too. Christians will drift into worldliness if they don't consciously reject it because they've intentionally analyzed it. If you don't, you will drift into it. So you've heard me say this before, that you will either adopt your values from Scripture. Let me, let me say it the way I'm supposed to say it. You will either consciously adopt your values from Scripture or you will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. You will either consciously and intentionally adopt your values from God and his word, or you will unconsciously and unintentionally absorb them from the world. That's what I see most Christians are doing. Most Christians do not have these more robust definitions and theological definitions of what the world is, what culture is, what it means for us to be holy at any given place and time. Our approach is what I said a couple of weeks ago, where does the Bible say I can't do it? And if there's not a verse that explicitly says felony home invasion is a sin... Then who are you to judge me? Yikes. The J word. And so judging is out the window because analysis is out the window because all that matters is that I prayed a prayer and I'm going to heaven. All right, I'm, I'm going to preach in here. I'll, I'll get off and back to the notes. But all that matters is I prayed a prayer and I'm going to heaven. And God says, you know, uh, I think there's more that matters than just you're going to heaven. If all that mattered is you're going to heaven, why doesn't he just kill us now? I mean, what's the point? It would appear there's some other things that matter. Else we wouldn't be here. Just beam me up. God leaves you here. That in itself tells you that there's more to what God wants and commands from us than just determining, did I pray a prayer and I'm going to heaven? It's to be increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. I can't do that. I can't be conformed to the image of Jesus. I can't be holy. I can't be set apart like that if I'm not regularly analyzing what is the world. What are these fallen values expressed in culture? And comparing that to what God says in Scripture. So, Originally, God creates the world, and it's all good. I mean, God not only says it's good, you know, every, every day of creation, you know, and on the, in the evening and the morning were the first day, and God saw that it was good, and it was good. And then you get to the end, and he says, and it was very good. It's all good. It's all good except sin then distorts what's good. Sin distorts all that is, is good. And that's what we have on page four. And then the fall, middle of page four. If indeed man was made for God, then any deviation from God's design 
is a matter of idolatry in that it has placed someone or something as primary other than God. The fall of Genesis 3 involved a radical reordering of the relationship of man to God and man to man. We saw the vertical effect between man and God. We saw briefly the horizontal effect. If you turn to page 5, there's an environmental effect that is upon, upon the earth, the atmosphere. So from this day forward, things like sickness, disease, death, and the battle of the sexes became natural. So you've got all these natural things that now happen when, in fact, they are quite unnatural. That's not what they were made to be. That was not the intentional design, but sin distorts all that is, that is good. So again, all is good, but sin distorts and misuses all that's good. So hear this. Rather now than people and things being means to worship God... They easily become the gods, small g, that we worship. I'll say it again. Rather than people and things being means to worship God, they now become the gods that we worship. God made it all good. Sin distorts all that is good. So that you take otherwise good things, relationships, stuff, material, And we begin to worship those. They become the God we worship rather than being means to worship God. Whenever you sin, whenever I sin, in that moment, something or someone has become more important to you than God. You think about any sin you can think of, from the so-called smallest to the most obvious or so-called biggest. Anytime you sin, someone or something in that moment has become more important to you than God. That's why this issue of idolatry then is so important. That's why God talks about friendship with the world being hatred toward toward God. You spiritual adulterers, that's what James 4.4 4 says. That's why God uses such strong language. So let me give you some examples of this. That whenever... Whenever we sin, someone or something in that moment has become more important to us than God. So let me give you more kind of everyday examples. When, when, when you sin by following the crowd, because you're worried about what people will think about you if you don't, When you succumb, that's another way of saying, when you succumb to peer pressure. Kids have peer pressure. Teenagers have lots of peer pressure. Do you know everybody's got peer pressure? That's why there's such a thing as keeping up with the Joneses. Whenever you do that, what have you done? You have made someone more important to you in that moment than God. When you succumb to the temptation to follow the crowd, you have made someone or something more important than God. Now, Proverbs 29, verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man. That's how it starts. Now, you're familiar with the Bible talking a lot about the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
But Proverbs 29.25 speaks of the fear of man, the fear of other people. That word fear, I'm going to do the rest of the verse here in a minute. Don't look it up until I'm done. The fear of other people, that word fear, the reverence, the awe. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about the reverence for the Lord, the awe that we have for the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom for a person. But the reverence and awe of other people will prove to be a snare. Proverbs 29, 25. That one verse covers peer pressure, keeping up with the Joneses, all of that. Because you revere, you are in awe of what other people think. And you, could, you can tease that out. And in that moment, when you're more concerned about what people think, therefore, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll engage in it. Yeah, I'll say it. Yeah, I'll lie about it. I'll lie about it. I'll exaggerate it to make myself look better. Why? Because I have this reverence for what these people think about me. And in all of that, in the moment you do that, someone or someone's has become more important to you than God. It's an act of idolatry when you do that. Likewise, we just completed a couple of series earlier this year. One on anger, how to be good and angry. And then how to be anxious for nothing. Anger is this good thing, the ability to to be displeased and then act upon an appropriate displeasure with something that's wrong. That's a God-given gift. The constructive displeasure of mercy. You remember it defined that way? The constructive displeasure of mercy. That's what anger is. But then sin distorts that. So that it becomes the destructive displeasure. It's still displeasure, but of self-centeredness. Now this good thing that God gives, sin distorts in an idolatrous way. Same thing for anxiety. Anxiety is... An inappropriate response to the circumstances. We saw that. It's the ability to be vigilant. To hold vigil. Coming from Genesis 2.15. God made us with the ability to do that. Adam was supposed to be able to do that. When a talking snake shows up in the garden. He's supposed to be holding vigil. He's supposed to get anxious. Rightly anxious. And then take action. But he doesn't. He's passive. When he should be should be active. Sin distorts this God-given thing so that we turn it inward rather than this being used as a means to bring glory to God and protect other people, which is what it was intended for. We now turn it inward and it's all about us and worry about what's going to happen to us. Someone or something has always become more important to God in the moment that we sin. Now, with all that, you are a much, I am a much bigger sinner than we thought, aren't we? You know, one of the reasons that we take the grace of God for granted as much as we do is because we don't understand how deep sin runs. Lord, if that's all true, if that is all true, and by the way, it is, then who can stand? No one. 
apart from God's mercy, apart from God's grace to us and his continued work. And the continued vigilance, the continued obedience, the continued work that we are to exert in order to learn of God and to follow God. Otherwise, I will just slide, you will just slide into worldliness. So page five. So the rest then is history. I mean, that's the rest is history. I mean, that is every, after Genesis 3, baby. The rest is all everything you see. Everything you've seen in history, everything we're experiencing now, it's all because of that. The entrance of sin into God's world did not result in a lack of worship, just different objects of worship. Therefore, idols rule the sinful human heart. These idolatries are generated within and they are impressed on us from without. First John ends in a way which at first glance is quite curious. This is the last verse of the letter of First John. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And the word idol and idolatry is not mentioned in the 105 verses of the letter of First John prior to that last verse. So might, one might wonder what, if anything, that ending has to do with the content of everything that John has said in this letter. And yet a closer examination reveals that the letter of First John is really a, could be said to be about idolatry. David Paulison says this, John's last line leaves us with that most basic question which God continually poses to the human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? It is a question bearing on the immediate motivation for one's behavior, thoughts, and feelings. In the Bible, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior, the Lord or a substitute? The undesirable answers to this question, answers which inform our understanding of the idolatry we are to avoid, are most graphically presented in these passages in 1 John that speak of the flesh and the world and the devil. Now you see toward the bottom of page 5 there. You've got the flesh. That is your sin nature. It's the internal motivation to idolatry slash worldliness. The internal motivation is your own sin nature. If you don't have a sin nature, then what's external to you, which is what's next here, the world, that air we breathe, all of that stuff that's around us that I was talking If you don't have an internal sin nature, then that stuff can't appeal to you. Do you know that? This is why Jesus could not sin. There was nothing within Jesus to which the world could appeal. Satan tried, but without success. Tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Jesus had no sin nature to which any of that could appeal. It was impossible that he could sin, but it's possible that we can. Not only possible, but it actually happens. Why does it happen? Because you've got both dynamics going on. We've got our internal sin nature, the flesh. The flesh doesn't mean our material bodies. Sin nature, internal. And then you've got the external, everything that's begging you and calling you and presenting to you and proclaiming to you. And internally you're going, yes, that's good. Yes, I need that. Yes, I want that. 
What's wrong with it? I prayed a prayer. I'm going to heaven. And then there is the spiritual or the demonological motivation. The devil. The world, the flesh, the devil. All three of these motivations conspire to move us to idolatry. The flesh is our self-centeredness, the wants, hopes, fears, expectations, and so-called needs that crowd out our hearts. The world is all that invites, models, reinforces, and conditions us into such self-centeredness, teaching us lies. The demonological dimension is the devil's behavior, determining lordship, standing as ruler over his kingdom of flesh and world. You see, the other two, flesh and world, are part of his kingdom. And he's ruling over those. And he's using those. So, if someone is tempted to sin in a particular way, let's use sexual sin, since that's such a big deal in the way worldliness is presented in our culture. Sensuality is a fallen value expressed in our culture. Everybody would agree? So, you're tempted towards sexual sin. Given these three elements, that there's an internal, an external, and a spiritual, demonological, if you simply say, put away your computer, get a block on your websites, then which of those three have you dealt with? Which of the three have you dealt with? You've dealt with number two, haven't you? You've dealt with the external. You've dealt with the thing that's inviting, the thing that... Now, I'm not saying don't do that. Quite the contrary. I'm saying do that. But I'm saying if that's all you do, then you haven't dealt with the internal thing to which the external stuff actually appeals. And here's what you'll do. You'll do one of two things. You'll either get drawn back into it, or you may lock yourself up so much, if that's even possible in this day of the ubiquitous technology and your phone, and you put locks on your phone, and you give your spouse the password to the phone, and you try all that, and that's all fine. But there are lots of ways to get around all of that. The sinful mind is ingenious. So you'll either find yourself trying to get around it and successfully doing so, or maybe you'll lock yourself up so much that you're not able to get to it. You stop, you stop that form of idolatry, but your heart has not been changed. So you simply replace that form of idolatry with a different one. Until the heart is dealt with, you haven't dealt with sin. Until the heart is dealt with, you haven't dealt with the root. You haven't dealt with the idolatry. So rather than being vulnerable to replacing one idolatry with another idolatry, what has to happen is we have to replace one value, one set of values, one set of desires with another. You replace that ungodly set of desires with a godly set of desires. Now you've gotten to the root. Now your behavior, your external behavior changes. Now Satan still will tempt, but he's got less to work with if your heart is fixed on those things. 
How are you going to get that? (laughs) That's through the hard slog of the Christian life and sanctification. That's why you desperately need God's word. That's why you desperately need God's people. That's why you, you desperately need God's spirit. We're going to move on. But dear friend, you are deceiving yourself. If you think you can live the Christian life in this world, if you think you can live the Christian life on your own, casually being associated with Jesus, casually being associated with his people, for some of you, what you're doing right now is the sum total of your Christian life. Sitting here on Sunday morning. If an hour or two on Sunday morning is the sum total of your Christian life, you're dead. Just say it straight. You are dead. You are a mark and Satan has got his sights on you. And you don't have a chance. You know, what are all those classes and stuff you guys teach at church? I know some people go to those things. Man, you guys just go to church a lot, you know. Why do you do that? Why do you teach these theology classes? Why do you teach these how to get the most out of your Bible classes? Why do you teach these foundational? Why do you do that? Why do you have these women's classes and people show up there who have been married for decades? The marriage class that Kim is leading has women showing up who have been there for decades and it's one of the most blessed things you'll ever see. Is a woman who says, a woman of God who says, I still have a lot to learn. Why are they doing that? Because God is showing them their hearts. God is showing them what they need. So I am telling you, dear friend, August 20th, I told you we have a special thing. My August 20th special thing is about a summary of what I just said. The stuff that our church is offering to you and the way we're offering it to you for you to advance in your walk with God. And to make sure you, everybody in our church understands what that is and why it's so important. And then to hopefully convince you that you need to engage in it. All right, page six. So if I'm going to be wholly set apart from the fallen values that are expressed in culture, that is the world, and yet I'm in the world and I'm surrounded by all of this, it's going to require courage. It's going to require the ability to say no. It's going to require the ability to say, I've got something better. And I am absolutely convinced that what I have and what I'm following is better. Even if it's not going better for me, at the moment, and maybe for the rest of my life. It doesn't look like it's better, maybe. Maybe my circumstances are really lousy. And yet I'm absolutely convinced that what I have is better than what you've got. Therefore, I have the courage to say, I'm not going that route. The courage of holiness is born of an absolute conviction that Christ is better than everything else. And if you don't have that, then you will look with longing eyes 
at what the world is doing. And you'll say, what's wrong with it? Just a little bit. Why can't I? I really want to. Why does everybody else get to? And on it goes. The courage of holiness means you're convinced, absolutely have this conviction, Jesus is better than everything else and anything else that the world has to offer. If you're going to have that, you've got to be able to take every thought captive. Your mind has to be able to filter out the lies of the world and your mind has to be able to combat those things with truth from God's word. Many Christians fail to stand up for truth in their words and actions because they fear the opinion of the world. Although there are a number of reasons for our fear, we might be exposed, we might be mistreated, the most common is we'll be rejected or ridiculed. The Bible calls this the fear of man. It warns against it, as I've mentioned in Proverbs 29. If we are not firmly convinced of the absolute rightness of our cause, we will not have the courage necessary to resist being squeezed into the world's mold. In order to live against the grain of the culture, against the grain, the believer must know and believe that the world's perspective is radically distorted. The values of the world are a distortion of God's original intention, and because its values are not consistent with the real world of the Creator, they cannot be lived out without disastrous consequences. Because the world is living on the, I say here, borrowed capital of the biblical worldview, but the other day I said the stolen capital. Because they're living according to the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. The whole facade that the world has put, has propped up, it can't hold. They can't live without the truth, ultimately. This is why, this is an aside, but as dark as the culture is becoming, here's the way I see it. I see the darkness of the culture as a great opportunity for the light. Because there are a lot of people who are in who are immersed in the darkness of the culture and they get to the end of that road and they see that it's a dead end. So it offers an opportunity if we truly are light. But if our churches are not going to be holy churches, if our churches are going to be mimics of the world, we got nothing to offer. We're no lighthouse to anybody. Therefore, We do not, third paragraph there, do not understand in order to believe. But rather, as Augustine said, I believe in order to understand. You see, once you believe, your eyes are opened. And now you understand. That is, once you're a Christian, now you see with new eyes. Similarly, Blaise Pascal said, The heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. Or as stated in Psalm 36, 9, in thy light, Lord, shall we see light. You see, it's in the realm of being in your light that we actually see, that we actually see light. Otherwise, we're blind. The believer who understands and believes this will not fear the opinion of man, but will live in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning, beginning of knowledge. So I want to take some time. 
on August 27th when we come back together. Four weeks off the next four weeks from this because I'll be doing the newcomers. We'll have some of our guys teaching the next four weeks. August 20th, I'm going to do that uh, single session. And then August 27th, we'll pick up here, okay? All right, let's pray. So, Father, we're thankful to you for making a good world. And yet, Lord, without your word, your good word, your truthful, accurate word, describing to us your intention for that world and what's gone wrong with it, we wouldn't know. We would grope around in darkness. We would not know that this world is not as it was intended to be. But you've given us all the instruction we need about who you are, about who we are, about why you created your world as you did, about how we're to use it, about what's gone wrong with it, about what it is that allows our hearts to be pulled away from you and to lesser things and persons. And Lord, our our hearts are veritable idol factories. We can create these idols out of anyone or anything. And we do so regularly. So Lord, all of this reminds us of how desperately we need you. How desperately we need to regularly be in communion with you and with your people. Through your word, by your spirit. Help us, if nothing else, Lord, to see that. And to avail ourselves of the opportunities that you grant us to learn of you and to become like you. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week as we live in the world, to not be of the world. May you be pleased. We ask you to protect us. And we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.